This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 76, Bicycles. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. You have no idea how excited I am about this week's episode. There is a lot to cover today, and it's longer than probably any episode I've done before, so I'm going to keep this introduction short. My story with bicycles start like most kids who grew up in the 80s and 90s. I rode my bike with the neighborhood kids all day, every day. Three years ago, I became a bike tour guide with Bicycle Tours of Atlanta, which of course put me on a bike, but it was still something I did for work and not so much pleasure. Last year, I bought my boss's 80s twin traveler, and it felt meant to be. It was about as old as I was, probably a bit too small, but it had character and history, and those are my two favorite things. I can't pretend I really know how to change a tire yet or do any bike mechanics, but it's led me to connect with people I would have never met. From my first group ride, shout out M plus M, or random strangers from Instagram that I now call friends. This week, we're covering Atlanta's history with the bicycle. It's riders, promoters, races, and where these things took place. You want proof that the issues we have today were the same issues we had 150 years ago? This is your episode. You like the Beltline, lantern parades, and paved roads? Learn why we can thank Atlanta's wheelmen and women of the past. The earliest bicycle prototype dates back to 1817 and was built in Germany. It was a rudimentary two-wheeled thing where you could only steer the front wheel and then you had a padded seat and an armrest. Its inventor, Baron Karl von Drees, takes the invention to Paris where it starts being called a velocipede. Around 1683, the first pedal bicycle hits the scene and it's made of solid wrought iron. If you need help imagining how rough that ride was, Americans called it the bone shaker. Popularity surges in the U.S. after the Civil War, but this model was not easy to ride. It had a large front wheel, tiny back wheel, and it was often called a high wheel or a penny farthing bike. They were really, really heavy, the seat was not comfortable, and it took a lot of strength, power, and coordination to ride. And they were expensive as hell. Despite the negatives, cycling clubs begin to pop up all over America. In 1869, Atlanta, we're five years out from the end of the war, and the city has risen from the ashes. The first Velocipede Club was organized, although we know very little about it. There were 200 Velocipedists in the city, and the club admitted only men of quote-unquote weight and standing. One member, Mr. W.A. Clayton, was considered the best, although an article states that he would do much better, but he has too much legs. There are a few mentions of a Velocipede rink on Broad Street. Um, I also read, though, that when Atlanta became the state capital, the room next to Dr. Calhoun's office was used as a rink. There was also a place called Cook's Rink, but sadly, we don't have a lot of descriptions of what these places look like or exactly where they were. This same year is also when the term bicycle became more common, but you will still hear terms like velodrome even into the current day. By the 1880s, the Atlanta Bicycle Brigade, as it was called, was growing. The development of the bicycle's chain-driven drivetrain led to what was called a safety bicycle, which looks a lot more like what you see today. And this allowed women and less physically capable Americans to ride a bike. A bicycle club meets in Atlanta, and its 20 members hold informal races from the Georgia Railroad to the Airline Railroad, which is the Beltline today. Dashes of 150 yards are won by C.H. Smith, who rides a Columbia, and George McCarty, who rides a Star. 
They wanted to build an eighth mile track at the athletic park, which was just being built, and they dreamt of giving fancy riding exhibitions. All riders are called together on Marietta Street at 8.30 to plan for a grand bike tournament and a skate race. In 1886, we saw the first mention of the Atlanta Bicycle Club. They continue to meet at 8.5 Marietta Street and have about 18 members and are led by President Captain E.P. Chalfont. And he goes by Ned. I also have no idea if I'm saying his last name right, so if someone knows, please correct me. Um, Ned was dubbed the best road rider, best hill climber, and the fastest racer in the club. The group wanted to build a cycle track at Grant Park, and the local YMCA really wanted them to come under their umbrella, so to speak. So they promised them that um, if they kind of folded together, they would get the the park oval and also allow the meeting space in their building. So the following year, the club goes under the YMCA. Also in 1887, we had the Piedmont Exposition, the first exposition ever held in Piedmont Park. The purpose was to showcase Atlanta, prove we're ready and able to host a World's Fair, and also promote that whole New South thing, which was led by event organizer Henry Grady. President Grover Cleveland even came to Atlanta um, and visited and spoke at the closing events. The Atlanta Bicycle Club was fast at work planning their part, which were races with 50 local riders and an influx of traveling riders that would grow to 200. Their events would take place the first four days of the first week of the fair, and as a grand kickoff, they would have a lantern parade. The same things we do now for fun in Atlanta, we got those ideas from people 133 years ago. And maybe you're wondering how a bicycle is outfitted to hold a lantern. Well, they were very obviously still riding the penny farthing style bicycle with a smaller back wheel, um, but they detail this for us in the paper. So an upright bar is extended from the handpiece and curved backwards as to rest on the small wheel of the bicycle. The curve is then dressed with six to 20 different lanterns. On August 24th, the club forms in front of the Capitol building with 30 glowing riders, led by Captain J.H. Cooper and Lieutenant Ed Durant. All of the riders were dressed in different outfits. Some had cycling clothes on, like knee breeches, and some had full-on suits. The bikes were all different sizes and all different brands, and they were preceded by a bandwagon. At 4.30 p.m., they began up Marietta Street to Cone, down to Walton, then to Spring, out to Hunter Street, and back to Marietta. Two days later, the big race took place. Riders were placed in Fairburn, and their goal was to see how fast they could reach Atlanta. Hundreds of spectators lined the route and watched the cyclists whiz by, the local winners being the Durant brothers. This whole event was great for publicity, and the following year, the club was 50 members strong. If it wasn't already evident, the majority of bicycle news in Atlanta is written by white men, so it's about white men. And early bicycle owning and riding was, across America, something solely for wealthy white male citizens. The advent of the safety bicycle, as I mentioned earlier, would democratize riding, but we'll get into that a little later. African-American cyclists have their own rich history, and it weaves into this city's story in incredible ways. In the recent Streetcars episode, I said that in 1890, local laws segregated trolley cars, and in protest, Black Atlantans staged an 11-month-long boycott. As alternate forms of transportation, they hitched rides on wagons um, and with friends, but boycott leaders also purchased bicycles for the protesters. Around 1900, both Dr. George Towns Sr., whose house actually still stands today, and attorney Peyton Allen both purchased bicycles so they wouldn't have to ride in segregated cars. 
There were black bike messengers and black bike messenger companies. The only one I found mention of was called Green Messenger Company. We know there were black bike riders in Atlanta, but unfortunately, their mention in white newspapers like the Constitution are solely related to crime or accidents. In 1892, the Capital Cycling Club formed, organized by Ned Chalfant. The Atlanta Bicycle Club had died down over the previous year, and the time was ripe for a fresh new cycling club. Their goal was the promotion of bicycling, the establishment of a fraternity of wheelmen, and the securing of cycling rights and privileges that single riders could not accomplish. Their uniforms were dark blue, with a cap that had CCC embroidered in silver lettering on the front. Their first official long ride was a race from Whitehall Street, through the West End, through Adamsville, and onto Lithia Springs. And they also held races at the Piedmont Park Oval, which was left over from the exposition. In 1893, the Lowry Hardware Company opened a branch at 38 Peachtree Street in order to stock and sell city bicycles. Carrying all of the brands, Eagle, Humber, Keating, Clipper, and Derby, they had models for men, women, and young boys. The company smartly hired Ned as the bike department manager, and it also created the first bicycle storage in the city. And they called them stables because that's literally what they were. Um, you just pulled your bike into this little wooden cubby. And the draw was you could ride your bike to the shop. You just drop it off. They would care for it. They would lock it up and it would be ready for your next ride. Six months later, sales were through the roof and it felt like all of Atlanta was on board with the cycling craze. Another bicycle lantern parade happened in June of 1893, this time put on by the Capital Cycling Club. 75 riders lined up on Petrie Street, and it's said that they stretched from the Artesian Well, this is today where Walgreens is, all the way up to First Methodist, which still stands at 360 Petrie Street. As they rode, other cyclists joined, and soon the parade was 100 riders strong. In 1894, the world-famous rider Jack Prince visited Atlanta. He's the most well-known, successful bicyclist in the world, and he tours the U.S. wanting to build cycle tracks or velodromes in different cities. Aside from talking to Atlanta officials about his plans for a track here, he also has a famous race at the Athletic Park where he races two horses and wins. By the following year, there is a mention in the papers of the cycling club of the YMCA led by Flavius Bird which is the best name ever. And he was a bike messenger in the city um, along with president of this club. Atlanta still had no track to ride on and Ned had already moved to Chicago. The Atlanta Bicycle Club was rebooted in 1895 and you can bet they appeared again because of the upcoming exposition. Similar to the 1887 Piedmont Exposition that we just talked about, local cyclists were really excited to be part of the Cotton States and International Exposition that was to be held in October. The biggest event would be Wheelman's Day on November 30th, and it would be preceded by a fancy banquet at the Kimball House and then a bicycle parade. Starting at the heart of the city, the riders would pedal to the expo grounds at Piedmont Park. A thousand riders joined, and there was a prize for the best decorated bicycle. The races on Wheelman's Day were the first appearances of Bobby Walther. Born outside of Savannah, Walther's mother died in 1891, and all of his siblings, I think there was like six or seven total, were sent to Atlanta to live with their aunt. By the age of 17, he was a clerk at W.D. Alexander's bike shop and a bike messenger. So when Wheelman's Day is announced, he and his friend enroll in the amateur races. A year later, he's traveling the country racing bicycles and becoming an international name. In 1899, he actually even started uh, racing motorcycles alongside his brother Russell. 
Bicycle riding exploded in 1896 Atlanta with over a thousand bicycles sold. And this is later than the rest of the United States because our city roads were poorly built and in bad repair. As a cyclist says in the Constitution, quote, if a wheel lasts and doesn't fall to pieces when ridden through the rough streets of Atlanta, it will last anywhere, end quote. And I don't know if you've noticed, but all of the early clubs, their races were to suburbs like um, Lithia Springs or Marietta, or sometimes they'd go to Eastlake. And this was because they couldn't ride in the city. There are horror stories of potholes back from this time that could have been written today. And I think the most important and fascinating thing I learned about bicycle history is that it's cyclists who we can thank for paved roads. The Good Roads Club existed in Atlanta in 1896, and just about every cyclist is a member. At this time, there are only two bicycle-friendly streets, Peachtree Street and South Pryor. I find this sadly ironic because Peachtree Street is probably the most intimidating road for new cyclists today, but I digress. Although Peachtree is smooth with asphalt, the sidewalks at that time were horrific, and pedestrians often walk down the middle of the road. I know this sounds crazy, but you have to remember it's very few automobiles, um, so it's just really horses and wagons, and it's common to see people in the roadway. The Good Roads Club tries to pass an ordinance requiring pedestrians to use the sidewalks as they claim that it's really dangerous at night and it's a miracle someone hasn't been mowed down. They also work on getting the city to close Peachtree Street for a set time each day, removing cars and wagons and leaving it open to cyclists. Um, sound familiar? Who knew the idea for Streets Alive dated all the way back to 1896? There's also a push to get Peachtree Street um, into South Prior Pave, so to connect the two, because currently it had Belgian Block. So if you've ever ridden your bike into the front of Oakland Cemetery through the main gate on your bicycle, the first five seconds of turbulence, as we jokingly call it on our bike tours, that would be your constant experience as an early Atlanta cyclist riding over Belgian Block. It is not pleasant. The Good Roads Club joins in with local groups like the YMCA Cycling Club, um, and they go on bicycle picnics or bicycle parties. And these entailed groups of young men, young women, a few chaperones, and a whole lot of bicycles. They would ride 10 miles, then they would return to one member's house where they would be entertained with dancing and refreshments into the night. The same year, the Atlanta Police Department decided to put officers on bicycles, not to everyone's liking. Chief Connolly was a wheelman himself, and so he made a strong push for it and claimed that bike cops were needed to catch scorchers on Peachtree Street. And a scorcher is a hilarious term. It's a Victorian term for riders who ride fast and aggressively outside of a sanctioned race. And they were also criticized for their not upright posture, which again was associated with a race posture and very improper. And the rigidity of Victorian morals is coming, um, I promise. Chairman Brannon tells Chief Connolly that if police on cycles start chasing a scorcher down Peachtree, they themselves become scorchers. And as had happened in New York, an army of wheelmen will normally chase the officer until he lets up the pursuit. Nonetheless, Connolly prevailed, and the first bicycle police were instated in July of 1897. Their first day was a big one. Chairman of the police board, James English, gives them a motivating speech and encourages them to be, quote, cool and fearless and masters of their machines, end quote. The first arrest by two bicycle patrolmen was of two black men accused of killing a pharmacy clerk. 
One of my favorite Coliseum race stories is the Bicycle Policeman Parade. Um, tickets are 50 cents and 75 cents for box seats, and all proceeds go to the Police Relief Association. At that time, there were about 14 bicycle cops, and the one name I recognized was C.L. Chosewood, who went on to become city councilman and the namesake of Chosewood Park. Another bike club came on the scene in 1896, and this was one tied to the city's first cycle path. The idea for a dedicated path for cyclists had been brewing for years. I just told you, the roads are terrible, and every bicycle rider in the city daydreams of a smooth, unbroken path for them to ride. B.F. Copeland leads the charge for this project, and the idea is that shares are sold for $10 a piece to 100 men. So with this money, you're not only funding the construction of the path, but then once it's complete, it will become a members-only type of thing, and you wear a little blue button that gives you access. Each share guarantees one year of trail access with as many lady guests as you'd like to invite. The men with the shares would become members of the Piedmont Cycle Club, and the path was often referenced in print as the Piedmont Cycle Path. The original plans call for 10 miles of paved path in cinder and a little bit of gravel, and it would run through private property, over three rustic bridges, and will have a grade not to exceed 4%. By December, all 100 shares are sold, and construction is well underway. In April of 1897, the grand opening took place with lots of sandwiches and lots of kegs of beer. It was only three miles, but the club invited all riders in the city to experience this smooth ride, no streetcar tracks, no wagons, and no, quote, deaf pedestrians insisting on remaining in the rider's way, end quote. Strategic marketing move here because they got everyone hooked on the path, but then the following day, it was closed to the public and open only to members. Unsurprisingly, the demand went through the roof, and another 150 shares were released, this time allowing women to become members if they like. By 1898, the path extended through the property of Mrs. A.J. Collier, which is today at Peachtree Road and 28th Street, and a clubhouse was set to be built at the Springs, where the original trail stopped. After expansion, it became a six-mile trail through the woods and was featured in Wheeling in the South magazine. So I enlisted the help of a cycling friend, uh, and fellow history nerd and much better with map person that I am, um, Emmett and I figured out that you would go up Peachtree, you would turn right around where Rhodes Hall is today, take your six-mile trek through the woods, and then you would exit near the intersection of Collier Road back onto Peachtree Street. The same year, the road from the West End out to Lee Street is being paved by convicts with Chert, which was a Carolina clay that hardens quickly and never got muddy. Cyclists are pumped about this new place to ride. The rights of wheelmen are finally being heard through the city, and although the Good Roads Club had disbanded by this time, the YMCA Cycle Club was the most popular in Atlanta. They have local races and use that money to fund a future wheelman's ward at Grady Hospital, which would be only to care for and treat injured cyclists. Jack Prince is back in Atlanta, and he's cutting deals with the Atlanta Amusement Company for control of the old exposition buildings. I talked about this, I think it was in a mini episode um, about amusement parks. But after the 1895 Cotton States Exposition, the rides and buildings were taken over by the city um, and they formed the Atlanta Amusement Company. So they planned to open an indoor track in the Liberal Arts Building. And Prince comes in and states his case. He's like, I got the clout. I have the experience. I've already built tracks in other cities. And he claims he can get a cycle track done in Atlanta in six weeks. Deal is done, and Atlanta is added to the Southern Racing Circuit, along with Chattanooga, Montgomery, Nashville, and Memphis. 
In April of 1897, the first bicycle race in the Coliseum was set. Lights are strung up, there's a band for opening night, and the consolidated streetcar is laying tracks over the grounds that would take visitors right up to the front door. Opening night crowds totaled 3,000, and Atlantans would watch Bobby Walther, his brother Russell, and Kid Spire, among others. It was a later race at the Coliseum where Atlantans would see their very first motorcycle, brought in by Bobby Walther as a pacer. As Jack Prince would continue to travel from city to city, the day-to-day operations of the Coliseum were run by the Atlanta Amusement Company, and riders were none too happy about how they managed it. The fee was $10 for the season, but two days out of the week, the track was closed for only ladies to use. You weren't allowed to wear a racing suit, and you couldn't ride fast. If you got up to 15 or 20 miles an hour, a track cop would throw up his billy club and stop you. So the racing competitors were furious. They're like, you cannot take two days off a week from training. This is silly. They suggested maybe taking ladies day, um, you know, letting the, the younger guys come in the afternoon or at least lowering the membership cost. In 1903, Jack was back and discussing opening a new coliseum either on Pryor or Jackson Street. Articles from 1904 name a place that existed called the Atlanta Stadium, where they did have bike races, but there's so little information about it, we don't really know where it was. The following year, the St. Nicholas Skating Rink opens at Ponce de Leon Park, and just four years later, it's converted to a velodrome by Jack Prince. 3,000 strong candle-powered electric bulbs dangled from the ceiling in January of 1909 when English champion races local Bobby Walther. Before we go, I want to talk about female riders. As I said earlier, the introduction of the safety bicycle brought the cycling world a more even playing field. The affordability makes it easier for Americans to own, and for those that could never afford a carriage or a horse, it finally gave them freedom of movement. Women have been controlled by societal rules and gender norms since the beginning of time, but the Victorian era was certainly on another level. There were customs around visiting friends, taking in a caller, how you dressed, you name it. And so bicycles threatened that, and in turn, conservative society hated bicycles. In Atlanta, J.B. Hawthorne was pastor of First Baptist Church, and he preaches constantly from the pulpit about the horrors of wheel women. That they were not women of the Bible, the act was indelicate and unwomanly, and really, it's the idea that wearing pants or even, God forbid, a shorter skirt, the whole straddling the bike, it was just all too masculine for society to handle. Cycling was also tied to women's suffrage, um, as I think it's Susan B. Anthony is quoted as saying, I think bicycles have done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. So association with these modern women was also a point of contention for Hawthorne. Atlanta women did have one religious ally. Um, Pastor McDonald of Second Baptist felt that ladies could, quote, mount a wheel and still retain all their womanly modesty and prestige, end quote. 1896 cycling guidebooks for women had entire chapters on appropriate dress um, and skirts, and this was a hot topic in every city. The long, heavy Victorian dresses um, and skirts were not conducive to pedaling a bike, so in Atlanta and across the country, women began wearing a skirt that was slightly above the ankle. Um, It was called a riding skirt. Some skirts actually had, like, you could tuck up your hem and make it a riding skirt and then when you got off you could unleash it to go right to the ground again um there was also a little bit later they had riding suits there are no women only clubs in atlanta's history um, and if they belong to any of the clubs i mentioned today there were no mention of their names 
There is an article from about 1892 where the short-lived Gate City Cycle Club invites and encourages women to join, but this is after they spent like at least 12 paragraphs detailing how a woman should mount her bike and exactly what she should be wearing to ride. Women did, however, participate in the bicycle parades and bicycle picnics, uh, and they often used the Piedmont cycle path as it was open to them without membership. To bring this history into more recent times, the Dick Lane Velodrome in East Point was built in 1974, after some East Pointers had gone to the 1972 Olympics in Munich. It's hosted pro racing series for years, and you can still go today to see the races. Shout out to my fellow bike tour coworker and friend Walt, who taught me about all of this, but really just helped me with a lot of biking facts in this episode. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's earliest bicycle history. I don't know about you, but I have found myself riding a lot while in quarantine as it's the best solitary social distancing activity on the list. So next time you're out, you can have a different appreciation for riding and the streets that you're riding on. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts and hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll see you next week.